Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of Weave Your Bliss. Welcome, welcome. I'm Paula, your host. I'm excited that you're here. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to sharing this interview with David Nickturn. David is a senior Buddhist teacher who's been practicing and teaching meditation for over 40 years. And he was one of the early students of Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, who came to the US in 1970. And David was there in the beginning. So we talk a little bit about that in this interview. He's also a business consultant with companies creating a variety of offerings, integrating meditation into a larger health and well-being context, including Goldman Sachs, Journey Meditation, Creative Live, and several other organizations. He's been featured in the New York Times, on Fox News, on Netflix's The Midnight Gospel, which you, if you have not watched, it's a delight. He also has his own podcast based on his book, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck, which we talk about extensively here in this interview. He's also a highly regarded composer. You may have heard the song Midnight at the Oasis. He composed that. He's also done scores for Christopher Guest's films, like The Big Picture. In recent years, he's produced multiple records and periodically tours with Grammy-nominated kirtan performer Krishna Das. And he's also played with Stevie Wonder, Jerry Garcia, Lana Del Rey, Maria Moldar, Paul Simon, and many others. So I'm really excited to share this interview with you. And we go deep. We really kind of nerd out about how awesome entrepreneurship is and the work that he does. And being a serial entrepreneur and changing the course of your life many times. So (laughs) I'm excited to share this with you. I hope you enjoy it. Before we jump in, I do want to make sure that you know that my brand spanking new astrology guidebook for 2023 is now out. This is my guide to all the lay low dates, all the most auspicious dates for launching, signing contracts, being visible, selling, all those things, as well as the major Indian holidays for those of you who are interested in that. And you can find all the full and new moons their placements and moon debilitations. So there's a lot of rich information in this guide and you can literally click a button and drop it right into your Google calendar. So for the entire year, it's just there in your calendar and you can see what's going on. If you are signed up for my newsletter list, you will also be able to get my deeper insights into these as it unfolds. But the calendar itself has a lot of rich information and you can literally plan your schedule for the upcoming year. So do check that out. There's a link in the show notes for you to grab it. And 100% of the profits are going to be donated to an indigenous organization and also an organization that supports South Asia. So you can check that out. You can learn more about the organizations all at the link in the show notes. Now on to my interview with David Nickturn. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for sharing this conversation with your peeps out there. We're looking forward to it. 
Me too. I'm excited to talk to you. I have your book. I've had it since I saw you in Maui like three years ago. Just really interested in talking to you more about creativity, spirituality, and making a buck, which is the title of the book. I thought of doing a re a reissue of it and say, creativity, spirituality, making a buck, pick two. <laughs> or now. <laughs> yeah, all three is a challenge, right? Yeah. So when you started out as a musician, did you feel comfortable with the business side of things? Was that something that came easily to you? I go way back as a musician. So when you say started out, I took guitar lessons when I was eight years old. And I don't think it was I didn't think at the time that would be my profession. That was just uh, my my sister got the piano lessons. So I got the guitar lessons. But music has always grown on me like a fungus, you know, and in my sort of teen years, I was a big bluegrass head. And I was traveling down south to go to these festivals and playing in Washington Square Park. I guess I was a dyed-in-the-wool New York folkie, one of, one of the real ones. Then, you know, in college, I, I started college as a pre-med student. My dad was a doctor. I didn't follow through on that, graduated as an English major. And then I went, oh, I better figure out some way to make some money. <laughs> and I got a gig uh, actually playing in a Broadway show right out of college. That It happened that my mother was the producer. And my uncle Irv was the music director. So it was a family business kind of deal. And then from then on, that's really the only way I've made a living my whole entire life, really. And your uncle Irv plays a big role in this book. Can you talk, like, was he a big influence on you deciding that music could be a, a business or a, a way of life? The only thing I wish for everybody out there listening is that you have an uncle or an aunt Irv of some kind. Because, you know, your parents have a very strong influence on you, but the uncle principle is sort of diagonal. And at a certain point when you grow up, that's a very important influence as somebody who's not right on top of your head, but a little bit off to the side. Yeah, so he was a major influence and also one of the most fun people ever on the planet. And then he was a cat. He was playing. He played with Frank Sinatra. He played with a lot of famous people. He was Marita Moreno's music director. So I got my jokes and my ability to think of it as a profession from, from Irv. Yeah, it's so important to be able to see what's possible, you know, when we're a creative person, you know, you want to be able to see or anything really, you know, you want to be able to see people in a successful marriage so you can see what's possible for you or somebody with a successful business so you can see what's That's possible. That's so well stated. That's so great because, yeah, you can't model. You have to, you need models. And uh, I think you're exactly right. He was a, a model of somebody who was also kind of spiritual guy. His playing, you know, he had a contemplative dimension to his playing that was just natural. Yeah, you said something about you had him come in like later on mm. when you were producing music, you mm. had you produced a record and you can you talk a little bit about that? Like how you were surprised? Oh, yeah, by you know, well, it's a very Buddhist thing that you don't uh, overcook the rice. You got to cook the rice, but you don't overcook the rice. So he was an improviser, you know, the, the great music tradition we have in the West is jazz, really. Classical music used to have improvising in it, but it doesn't anymore. Like a violin concerto, there'd be a part that you could improvise, but now they do sort of a standard thing instead. But jazz is all improv. And so he, his mind had to be very present, very awake, and he had to have the chops to play whatever he could think. So we decided to make a record called The Cocktail Hour. That's what I wanted to call it. So many people hire a piano player for like an event or something. But what if you can't afford one? Well, here's a CD that you could put on and you get basically the cocktail hour. And he was a genius at that. So he could play like 30 or 40 tunes in a row, modulate into different ones, tempos, modulate. So I thought, well, we'll, we'll put that together. And I thought we'll probably have to edit some stuff together. And he came into the studio. The funniest thing was that uh, my engineer thought that his stage name was Uncle Irv. 
And then he sat down and he put his hands on the keyboard, started to play, played through about 30 tunes, lifted his hands up at the end, and it was a 45-minute CD, perfect, from beginning to touch it, from beginning to end. Now, that's a level of mastery that, you know, how many people with their little editing bays and digital configurations for music could, could touch that? That was a great moment. And it, it had to do with the fact that he had a, a kind of presence of mind and graceful ability to weave his craft together with a, a strong focus. So it was a beautiful mindfulness uh, demonstration, too. Right. I'm really interested in that place where creativity and spirituality kind of cross over. You know, that's also why I wanted to talk to you and like why I find this story so interesting is like, you know, there's a lot of people who do music and, you know, my husband included, he used to play the tenor sax and was very dedicated to it. And like that, it becomes a spiritual practice. It's like your path. You want to move people so they feel something. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I have two words about that. John Coltrane. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I remember listening to a Love Supreme when I was 15, uh, maybe 16. A Love Supreme. You know, this is this beautiful. First of all, they invented this modal jazz, you know, that's not like harmonic. That's not tracking tunes, but it's uh, more akin in some ways to like a polyharmonic Indian music. It has a, a, a tonality that you play through. It puts you in a space that's cohesive. You know, you're not being sort of moved around so much. And then in the middle, this blazing. And of course, he brought up some of these other great musicians like Herbie Hancock. You know, a lot of, a lot of the great contemporary jazz players came out of that experience. And then in the middle of it, he's going, I love Supreme. I love Supreme. Ramdas comes in. <laughs> yeah, basically. You put you in a trance. <laughs> I am loving awareness, you know. Yeah. And so all those things were all mushed together for me from day one. That's the truth. I was yeah. playing in a band with Jerry Garcia while I was studying with Drunker Rinpoche. Those worlds were all colliding for me from day one. Amazing. So early on, you had a hit, Midnight at the Oasis. And... God this open child that's got a hit. Right. And that opened a bunch of doors for you. So what was that like? Like, how old were you? You kind of write about how that unfolded in the book, too. Like it was kind of you were in a zone almost when you wrote it. And then <laughs> I was on a like, waterbed, to be precise. <laughs> Nobody even remembers what those were. I remember every once in a while, one of them would leak and like flood your apartment. But it was a big deal, a waterbed back then. And it was um, literally a mattress filled with water and you would slosh around it. For those of you who don't know what it is. And I had a companion and it was kind of romantic. And she had a little triple O 28. Uh, Martin guitar on the side of the bed, and I just picked it up. And it's been, and we were eating grape leaves and feta cheese. <laughs> so that was what That's inspired the poetic it. Poetic license. It's midnight at the Oasis. Send your camel to bed. I had, of course, no idea as a songwriter. Let's say a parent has three kids. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, two of them end up working in a, in a lumberyard, and one of them is the president of the United States. It's, it's so songs are like that. They come out. If you're smart about creativity, you don't mess with it too much. You receive, you don't push. So, uh, and people talk about the muse, all kinds of receptive energies. Yeah. So it came out and then I, one thing led to another, which was that I started to work with uh, Maria Maldara, who was a wonderful and innovative singer. They were really bringing the old Americana music up to date and uh, really doing it right. So she was kind of a goddess of the folk world at that point. And then she got to make a record. I got to work on the record. They kind of put that song on the record. I don't think they jammed it out as a single right away. It's not an obvious hit in the business. And then uh, it took off. 
I remember walking into um, the Toyota store and buying a car for cash. <laughs> you know, it was just an amazing thing. And driving down the highway, hearing your song on the radio is just one of the best feelings ever. I know Paul Simon's probably bored of it, but I'm not. So here's where the twist comes in. You decide like you, you finally have this hit and there's doors opening. People want you to write for them. And you're like, I'm going to go live in an ashram in Vermont. It's sort of like being open to the flow of life. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your teacher and how you, you met him. And so that we know why we can understand why you would make that jump. Yeah. When you said make that jump, I thought of like, I like Star Wars a lot when they jump to light speed meeting. It was like hitting the warp drive a little bit. Music business was pretty energized, but it could lead you to a, a kind of thickened and more solid sense of self. And it does. It causes people a lot of problems because not because they're creative, but because they identify too much with a, a kind of solid, solidified version of who they are, which, as you know, in the Buddhist world, that's that's where the suffering comes in. It's not what you do or how you do it. It's just that you your narrative gets stuck and too dense and too thick. So I had met Rinpoche, Trungpa Rinpoche, early and well before I had that hit. I met him in 1970, or the fall of 1970. And at the time, I was going to the Berkeley College of Music, which was kind of fun. I had already graduated from Columbia College, so it's not like I was a young, I was a little bit older, and I had already had experience, but I wanted more technique and more chops. And then I started studying yoga, at a place, and it just coincidence, we call it tendril, auspicious coincidence, led to the fact that my teacher was one of the people who brought Trung Rinpoche to the West. And so he came and he gave a workshop at the yoga studio. I walked up from Berkeley College of Music to my yoga studio and met him for the first time. You know, people, I'm, write, I'm writing a, a lot these days about finding a teacher or what the role of a teacher is, whether it's mu music or dharma. So I think it's an interesting topic. But I wasn't, I don't think I was exactly looking. I looked up at the sky and a thing fell on my head, a coconut fell on my head. So there was such a strong feeling of connection. And I think other people would describe this. I'm sure if you ask Ram Das, or we can't ask him anymore, but Krishna Das, or how do you find that person? There was a lot of auspiciousness there and synchronicity. So um, I just started, then I just started following up with that. And that meant me going to different retreats and mixing that in with my with my life and in the music world. And then in 1978, with a, a new wife a, a, who was pregnant with the marvelous now 44-year-old Ethan Nickturn, who at the time was called Utzel Putzel Tutzel. <laughs> <laughs> really, really cute baby at the time. Um, who, who I actually studied meditation with like 20 or something, like 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he's, he's a, a young, a, a prodigy. <laughs> he's a famous teacher now at 44. He's yeah. very, very well known as a Dharma teacher and writer. But at the time, I was living in Los Angeles. And uh, Trungpa Rinpoche asked me, would you go to um, Vermont? We had this growing Dharma center. It was probably more like a contemplative center than an ashram, but it had ashramic qualities, which was a lot of young people and trying to find their way and stuff. And, and they viewed me, here's the irony, as a grown-up. we got to get a grown-up in there to run this place. So how old was I? 30. <laughs> I was a grown-up because I had some professional life. I had some business skills. 
they wanted to take it to the next step of kind of like really stabilizing it as a, as a place people could go to learn about meditation. So we spent the next two years living there. That's how that happened. Did that answer your question? Yeah. And as like listeners may be interested in the astrology, like as you were talking, I'm smiling because you have this beautiful Jupiter in your fifth house that was activated from 68 to 84. It's called a Hamsa yoga, which is the swan, right? So that idea of like the teacher falling on your head, like you have the chart of someone who would meet their teacher in this lifetime, you know, that would be a big part of the the main. From 68 to 84. Yeah, that's when it was activated, right? And you know what? He died in 87. Okay. Before he died, he, he recessed somewhat from the active duty roster of teaching people every day. So that would have been exactly the time. And that's amazing. What a great... Now, see, I'm an entrepreneur. More than a Buddhist teacher, more than a guitar player, more than a songwriter, I'm an entrepreneur. I love ideas. You are sitting on a gold mine here of mixing this astrology thing with the interview process. I love it. <laughs> in my ear. <laughs> There's something I love to do that. with that. That would be like the process of talking to people about their life in a public setting and then alluding to their astrological chart is a total home run, in my opinion. Well, I love talking about astrology because it's been so helpful in my life. And I feel like it really helps business owners understand what they're here to do and to understand the timing of what they need to be focusing on when, right? So that they're not just utilizing their energy in, in a counterintuitive way or like in a way that's going to not be productive. So you're killing yeah. me softly with your song right here. So <laughs> um, do you do this? Do you do readings for people apart from doing your podcast? I work as a, a business coach and then I also do uh, astrology with my, my folks. Yeah. So that's what I focus on, but it's hard because I would love to help everyone, but we don't have endless time. So I, if people come on my podcast, they get a little taste of it yeah. <laughs> because well, and the people out there get a taste of what you're offering is. So that's precisely beautiful. And uh, I'm fascinated by this. So you looked at my chart before we were talking here then. Absolutely. You know, right now is like a time of you kind of reflecting, going inward and doing a lot more meditation and, you know, practice. But I'm so um, engaged with the Dharma on right. my platform. And you can't help but be that as well. Like it's yeah. not going to change because the you're in Ketu's sun. Ketu is the south node. Right. So it causes things to change quickly or for, you know, to get ideas because it's very innovative. Right. And then the sun is in your seventh house, which is the entrepreneurial house. So it's, it's activated, you know. It's so <laughs> activated right now. I have so many things cooking. I'm 74.5 years old. <laughs> Some people think, well, you know, you might as well start wrapping it up. I had on my podcast, Jamie Lee Curtis came on. She's an old friend, and she's really smart. She's whip smart, actually, about life stuff, clearly. And and we were talking about death. You know, what is, is death a tragedy? Because people go, oh, you know, they, they're so linked to the idea that it's... And she said, it's only a tragedy if you had ideas that you didn't get to... If you got to put your stuff out there and put it down... And leave it for the rest of the rest of the tribe. Then it's it's not a tragedy. So that's where she drew the line. I was intrigued by that. I thought about that since then. I've got I've still got a lot of uh, a lot of ideas actually. Yeah, tell me like how do you manage that? Because I have a large amount of ideas as well, but not all of them are going to become something, right? Yeah. So what do you think? Like in light of that, what is what makes a good entrepreneur? Like how do we select our ideas or how do we cultivate the right ideas? Yeah. Well, of course. This is exactly what creativity, spirituality, and making a buck is about. Because it's about the first chapter is 
called Joining Heaven and Earth, which was an idea that I got from Trungpa Rinpoche, but it's a, it's an Asian paradigm for thousands of years. And also the idea of heaven in like the I Ching or things like that is associated with ruler, being a good governor, a good, a good leader, is that you're in touch with heaven. So even they would say in European culture and Asian culture that the, the monarch is heavenly appointed. Like, for example, that's what they would say about the emperor of Japan. And you go, well, what does that mean? Did God, but they're not theistic, see? So it's not, it means that person is in touch with the big picture. That's what it means. So the mind is very open, sky mind, we call it in Buddhism. And there's not a lot of um, overcrowding going on at that point. And in that spaciousness, something dawns that has a lot of clarity and, and spontaneity to it and timeliness usually. And so you hatch a vision. Now that vision then becomes, if it keeps cooking, it could just be part of the larger zeitgeist. You could be tapping into intuitive things that way. But if it taps you and goes, you're supposed to do something with this. And then it becomes a potential uh, project. Um, and at that point, I say there's a an offering, huge decision to make. Is this going to be my livelihood or my pleasure funding? And so I keep tracking it down till finally you get down to earth. You go, okay. Here's Paula on Earth on day 16 of whatever month it is. What are you going to do today? Then it gets Earth is saying, well, we just refinanced our house. You know, I got, I got to generate some cash flow. Earth is saying, I have a health issue or, you know, Earth is talking only details. And as the heaven comes down and connects with Earth, we call it joining heaven and Earth. And that's the basis, by the way, of a lot of Asian art. You know, flower arranging is based on that. Trungpa Rinpoche used to do that kind of Japanese flower arranging, and you put the earth element in, and then you put, first you put the heaven element in, which is just the, you know, the first flower, and it has a kind of soaring quality. Then you put the earth in, and then human is the part that connects the two. So our job in that paradigm is to join heaven and earth. You look at people like you're a life coach, you're a business coach, you look, some entrepreneurs have too much heaven. They never, their stuff never comes all the way down. And some get really caught up in, in, in too much earth and, and there's, there's no more any, uh, a sense of vision or, or movement that way. So, you know, that's the basic idea. Of course, there's much more specifics to it as it evolves. But like you, I also like to coach people in that because I don't use astrology, but I use maybe more of the Buddhist framework or, or just common sense or experience. Where are you on your timeline? So the magic is that when you bring it down, heaven is timeless. But when you bring it down to earth, you're on, you're on conventional timeline. And where are you on it? So every project has a beginning, a middle and an end, right? Now, where are you on that project? Like I have two musicals I'm working on. They're somewhere in the middle. I can't land the plane on them. I was going to do a, I was going to do a project where I showcased one of them and then COVID hit and they were showcasing nothing. So you have to adjust as you go. And if you're a creative person, it, it's important to pick out. Where am I on this project and, and am I going to finish it? I, I talk about that a lot in the book. Yeah. So tell me about the motivation for writing this book. Cause I feel like you and I chatted a little bit at Omega recently right. and I was asking you to, are you constantly talking to spiritual people about money and how they can make money because they have trouble? I find like thinking about it, talking about it. So was this kind of a guidebook to be like, here's how you think about no, it, talk about it? It was one element. The main element is how to integrate those three aspects of who you inevitably are. For example, in the spiritual communities that I grew up in, nobody was really doing creativity that much. 
It was like, and nobody even knew, you know, what you did in your real life or something like that. It was like, that's ego territory. So I was always a little dissatisfied by the opaqueness uh, and obliqueness of the spiritual practitioners, that they didn't engage the world on its own terms so much. They were waiting for it to come to them. It has that element to it, yeah. But it also, um, I love it when, like, for example, you saw me light up when you talked about your particular little thing, because I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And you said was it puts people in their timeline. Oh, yeah. Said, oh, it's timely. And you said, oh, from 68 to 84, this was happening in your ecosystem. I think people tuning into their timeline is is how to join the absolute and the relative situations skillfully. Yeah. So what do you hope people take away from this book? <laughs> I thought first, well, what do I hope that I take away is $12.36. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, it's all a homing beacon. You know, we put out our homing beacon and we want to find home. This is home for me. This integration, this whole process. Trungpa Rinpoche just hit, like, if we were playing darts, it was like he was blindfolded and, and threw it behind his head and hit the dartboard right in the middle for me, which was the Shambhala teachings are all about a very particular articulation of meditation training applied towards the everyday life. I thought, that's for me. I'm in. Put me down for two. So from there, it's a reiteration of that perspective. It includes government, science, art, culture, communication, media, all of it be infected with some kind of wholesomeness. But in, if it's to heaven and then people are just, spiritual people can be very abstract, you know, and very metadata, then you go, well, how did, what happened Thursday at 3.30 p.m. when you forgot to pick your kid up at school and you got home and there was, you know, a tax audit in your mailbox? How's your shamatha vipassana practice going? How's your lojong going? So I look at the Buddhist teachings. There, it's a complete compendium of practical living. I've always seen it that way. What do you do when somebody kicks your your chair in the theater? If you're a Buddhist, what do you do? I don't know. <laughs> what do you do? Let's say you're <laughs> sitting in the movie theater and somebody's kicking the back of your chair. Oh, what do I do? Yeah. I would be probably calm and just like I don't know, turn around and be like, "Could you stop?" <laughs> And now you, you're in New York and you say, could you stop? And they give you a dirty look. And now that they, they, you don't know what's going to happen next. Because they I probably would it. get up and move to a new seat. <laughs> See what I mean, this is intriguing because these things happen. Mm -hmm. People cut you off. Uh, uh, people feel entitled. People push your buttons. You know, you're reactive. All the Mahayana teachings are about how to, how to deal with those situations. Mm -hmm. Very practical. I find, too, that entrepreneurship really brings that to the next level in a way that's exciting. You know, like for me, the spiritual, bringing the spiritual into the material is exciting because anybody can go sit in a cave and not talk to anybody and eat like rice and beans all their life. Yeah. Like that's not as hard as being in the world and dealing with relationships and being responsible for things. And starting a business means being a public face of your business. A lot of people I work with, they're the CEO of their small business and they're trying yeah. to create something. And, and so they have to be the best advocate for that thing. And it means being visible about it and talking about it. And that becomes risky. And it's like, who's going to respond? How, you know, so. Just add one you're... caveat. Mm -hmm. It's actually not that easy to sit in the cave and meditate. I know. <laughs> no, it's an interesting thing. People might think that, but really deep practice has all the same elements of it. As far as I can tell, which is it's challenging. You bring your interpersonal relationships with you in your knapsack 
You're just reviewing the relationships of your whole life. You're never really alone in a weird kind of way. You just don't have anybody to blame. Right. It becomes activated in the world, though. When you're with people, then it's like happening at that moment and needs to be dealt with in a way that is pretty intense, I think. (laughs) In the field work. Yeah. So I find that I'm working with a lot of spiritual folks who have trouble around money. So do, do you have any practical advice for people in thinking about money as a spiritual person? Well, you know, one way to think of it is just think of it as energy. It originally is a means of exchange. You know, before money, there was salt. Oh, I need some salt. Well, you got some salt. What do I have that you need? I like that kind of primitive relationship of exchange. Also, it means you're not a beggar at a feast. You have to bring some of your own richness to the party to be the party. So, for example, in Buddhism, you have to make an offering to a teacher before you ask for teachings. There's a famous story about, you know, there's a lot of archetypes in the, in the Tibetan Buddhist world, but famous teachers of the past. There was one named um, Marpa, who's the one who translated Buddhist teachings, went to India, learned them, and then translated them into Tibetan and went back to Tibet. He was one of several people who was considered like a progenitor of the translation of, of Buddhism into Tibet. So he was a business person to start with. He was a farmer and he had that mentality, he had that archetype working already. And he went there and his teacher was uh, Naropa, who was a scholar, uh, but who had transformed into a yogi and a real heavy duty practitioner, but after being quite an in-depth scholar. And Naropa's saying to Marpa, well, you know, we have to charge for these teachings. So Marpa was set up for that. He was ready. And that was part of the tradition. And he had three bags of gold with him that he had brought. And so he said, well, in his mind, I'll give, I'll give him one bag of the gold. And that way I'll have one bag while I'm living here. I can pay my way and my keep and my food. And then I'll have a third of it to get back to Tibet. This is called not spending the principle. You know that jargon, right? We both literally and uh, energetically don't want to spend the principle. We want to spend the interest and then live, keep, keep the principle stored away. So Naropa just sees his mind, you see, right through it. And he goes, well, I'm afraid that's not enough, you know. So Marpa goes, oh, gosh, well, I don't know. I can live very frugally while I'm here. <laughs> I love this story so much because <laughs> it's so symbolic of, of what we do. And he gives him the second bag of gold, right? But he's already been seen. He's already been outed as a kind of um, calculating, uh, like this is some kind of commercial deal here, and it isn't fundamentally. So then Nurab says, you know, look, I have to be honest with you. You have to give it all. And he takes the third bag of gold, gives him, and just, and what happens when you do that? You just surrender. He is just open to the situation. And so, um, you know, Naropa, this almost makes me cry. That even, there's something so poignant about this. Takes the gold and throws it up in the air. And the whole environment is coated with gold, becomes golden, rich. And he says, what need do I have for your gold? The whole world is gold to me. That's the teaching. That's the pure Dharma. There, there is no deal at the end of the day. But then Marpa took it back. And another thing that happened is on the boat on the way back to crossing a river and a jealous competitive student threw his books overboard or knocked them off. So now he doesn't even have the books, the texts. Then he had to think, I either have this or I don't at this point. It's not in the books. I had the transmission holding this. And then he went back and started his, um, you know, he ran a good business, actually. He's a sort of archetype for that. He ran a good farm. 
He had students. I, I look at him as a very good role model for, and I think Trungpa Rinpoche was like that also. For entrepreneurs. Yeah. And he was married and he had a house and he had children. Householder. Mm -hmm. yeah, Householder yogi. Well, it's interesting. It's like you have to give up everything. Sometimes when you're starting something new, you put more into it than you know if it's going to come out. And you're, you know, like similarly to what you're saying, I was thinking about that. Like we invest in ourselves, we invest in what we're doing, yeah. and we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, but we have to be surrendered in certain ways to like our own inner knowing of what we should be doing. Like you said, receiving that idea and then bringing it to earth and and doing it justice. And sometimes you spend the principle. Sometimes you're a fool if you spend the principle. Mm -hmm. It's foolishness. You have to know that, no, I'm not doing it this time. But sometimes, you, you know, I, I spent the principle when I started my record labels. I had a couple of record labels. I didn't really know what I was doing. The first conversation I had with somebody was a Japanese friend. And I said, what's it like having an indie record label? She had one. He said his English was a little broken. He, he answered me in one word. He said, sucks. <laughs> I didn't listen. <laughs> I lost my shirt. Uh. And then weirdly, it came back around because I signed an artist at the end of it who ended up being very successful. So even after dipping all the way into that and taking out a second mortgage on my on my two living abodes, it came back around. So you don't know where it comes from. Right. Sometimes you have to have faith in yourself. Totally. How's it going yeah. for you? What do you mean? My, my, my work? Yeah. I love it. I absolutely love it. Wake up every day so excited to do my work that I have to, you know, schedule in time to not be working because okay. I have a farm. So I'm also canning food and putting wow. away stuff for the winter. <laughs> Fabulous. What a nice combination. Yeah. It helps to balance me because I can get like for me, the heaven part, I do my practices, but also like I can get up in the ideas part and not take care of my physical body in the way that I should. That's how that needs to, you know, shift. I have to be aware of that. But is it going well, your business? Is it, is oh, yeah. It's so much fun. I have the most incredible clients and I help them reach their goals. And it looks different. It's amazing how different people come to me for different reasons. And I help them with the astrology, but also these blocks that come up and trying to figure out how to price themselves and how to create, you know, schedules that work for themselves and their client dynamics and their teams and things like that. I love getting into all of the strategy of it. So yeah, you have wonderful. the same, you know, we're alike in that way. I, I, you've been to Maui, right? So yeah. You, you remember in the lobby of the hotel, there's a puzzle out on the table there. Not everybody knows this. <laughs> Vaguely. <laughs> they have a, a table in the, you know, it's an open air lobby like they have in Hawaii. And there's a puzzle that's halfway done and anybody can walk up and move a couple of pieces around. Uh-huh. So I use that analogy of the life puzzle. I like looking over somebody's shoulder at their life puzzle. I love it. I can't mm -hmm. stop myself. I have to stop myself sometimes. My nickname is Nudgy. Yeah. So Nudgy about it. But there is something so incredible about somebody else's life puzzle. And you look at it and you go, ooh, what if you just move this one piece over here? That might be really good. I'm sure that's what you do, right? Totally. And it's amazing how little thing, little shifts can make huge differences. Like monetarily, but also energetically, family dynamics wise. It's just, it's really joyful work. So I'm grateful for it. And do you have a book out too? I don't yet, but I'm, uh, Secret is out. I'm working on one. So we'll yeah. see. <laughs> yeah. I but can't wait to hear about it. Thank you. So I'm curious how spiritual practice helps in, in running a business. We've kind of been talking about this, but if you have more you want to share or riff on. Yeah. I did 
uh, leave it on the field, so to speak, with the book Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. And I, I just recommend it to anybody who is interested in the topics that we're talking about because it was a core dump for me. I visualized my hand coming up out of the grave and it's holding that book. The interesting thing is I'm I'm wondering if I have another book in me. I really didn't think I'd not, but now I'm starting to feel one. Like, you know, how you, uh, what's that, you know? But the idea of success early on, there's a chapter on defining success in your own terms. Huge point. Most of us get our idea of success from our society and our parents or shaking that off too hard. So what is your idea of success if, if somebody's a spiritual person, quote unquote, that's the, like, you know what Gellick Membache used to say? I'm in the love and compassion business. How cool is that? And he wasn't embarrassed about the part where they had to charge for workshop. You know, that's the business he was in. So defining success, what would it look like? And some people, if you ask Mother Teresa what success is, she's going to give you a different answer than Elon Musk is. But the book could be authentic. So I think that's the first question is asking somebody, well, I also coach people one-to-one on this kind of stuff. So, And it's not uncommon for somebody who owns a yoga studio. I'm sure you have some yoga studio owners in that in that Michigas there. They are clueless why they're not able to maintain and sustain their business. And some of them might have a, a partner or somebody who's investing in it. But if you're defining success as running a successful yoga studio, and you define success as sustainability, right, livelihood, and a little bit of thrive in there. You know, you're not greedy. That's awesome. I don't want to come in there and say, oh, no, you could have a chain of yoga studios. Uh, you define it, but then look at where the energy barriers are for you achieving that. And a lot of it is just um, habits of learning curves and things like that. It's painful to learn new things. And we like to continue to do things the way that we've done them. <laughs> Even if it doesn't really work. Right. And one thing I noticed about you, like before we jumped on, I said, is there anything you want to make sure we talk about? And you were like, let me think about what's going on in, in the Dharma moon world. And, and you were trying to strategize, like, when are we coming out? Like, when is this coming out? I am really into helping people promote themselves in a way that feels like service. You're sharing what it is that are your gifts. And so I want to know what you think about this. Because I think a lot of spiritual entrepreneurs are afraid to put themselves out there and be like, this is for sale. <laughs> you can sign up here, you know? I Last year, I took a course with Richard Tobinger and Kylie Slavic, who is called Conscious Marketers. They do the work for Sounds True. Now, Sounds True is a company. If you're looking to build a company, you have to look at Sounds True and go, this is a totally sort of spiritual focused company that has achieved success in the marketplace. You would want to look at Headspace or Calm if you're starting a meditation app or something like that. It's not that you have to emulate them, but you should know uh, what's involved. And that's where I talked about the business body in my book, that chapter. If you're t using the word business, and that's why I say before you start, if you're not trying to make money, uh, I'm the last person in the world that says you have to. When my son Ethan was they were doing the college things in high school, I said, you don't have to go to college. Why do you want to go to college? Well, you want to learn that? That's good. Go there. So this idea of you're on a treadmill and you have to be successful, I'm against that perspective. I don't think it's a healthy perspective. But if you want to define your terms and say, look, I'd like to have um, three yoga studios in a regional area and have a great, great teachers and stuff. Okay, well, there's a lot of things to tune up there. It's like some playing guitar that hasn't been tuned yet. So, yeah, so that the business body is saying the left foot is the R&D. You got to know your field. You got to know what 
is going on there, what you want to shape, what materials you're working with. And the right one is product packaging for anything. You know, I, I saw this in Kachava. Have you seen Kachava? They're everywhere all of a sudden. It's this uh, nutrient thing. I never heard of it before. And it's in a bag. And you can buy it. And here's what's in it. And here's what it does. Which then leads you towards left hand is marketing. You got to let people know that you have a yoga studio. There could be somebody living six blocks away from you and they don't even know. And then sales, which is my favorite thing. Because salespeople are my favorite kind of people, actually. It's so fun. I love sales. (laughs) You'll never starve. I know, but it is, I grew up around my dad who was a salesman. Wow. So I know, like, he would tell me when I was like five, you know, about a deal, like I was an adult. <laughs> it's really funny. Well, that's yeah. a very rare creature in the, in the, in the, you know, ecosystem we live in because good salespeople are super hard to find. Like, I love to make sales fun. I love to help people make sales fun. And I think there's so many ways to do that nowadays with social media. We have so many tools. We can share our story in a way that we never were able to, you know, in the past, it just wasn't normal to be like authentically marketing and telling your story. And I think that's TV station, basically. It's fun, but it's also a little bit, I'm going to add another element to it. And I hope people understand this the right way. There's a little bit of a killer instinct, which is you like to close. Now, everybody likes to talk, right? Everybody, But not everybody likes to close. And a lot of people, you must know this from your dad and from your experience, going past the close. Have you heard that expression before? I'm not sure what exactly you mean, but like the The service delivery. And you keep talking. Oh, that. Yeah. (laughs) A lot lot of sales, budding salespeople. And so real good salespeople, they like the point where the money changes hands or the value changes hands or the deal is done. You're shaking hands. And uh, you get a certain satisfaction out of just that. Let's see what happens after that. But that is fulfilling for a sale. It is. But I think also the genuine feeling that I only want to work with the right people. And I only want the people who are willing to step forward. And like, I'm not reliant on anyone sitting in front of me to pay my bills. Like, they're there because they want to be there. I'm here because I want to be there. Like, that's when I get really excited is I'm like, Ooh, I see a possibility where I can really help this person. I'm like, here's the opportunity. Step in. I'd love to have you. If you don't jump in, that's fine too. <laughs> no doubt there's a benevolent dimension to it, which not all salespeople have. Right. I think that's spiritual practice that's really helped with that. Blend, just... though, is, is you great salespeople have the sense of joy. And, you know, look in our closing chant at Dharma Moon, we say, May you be happy, may you be free from suffering, may you experience joy in the happiness of others. What a concept. And guess what? It is part of our nature to do that. Totally. It's called Christmas, you know? (laughs) So I have some rapid fires for you. Are you open to those? Yeah, I thought this was that, but okay. (laughs) What is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Uh, I'll go for the first thought on these. We call it, one piece of advice is first thought, best thought, which is something Trunk Rinpoche said, but not letting that be the piece of advice. That's the pre piece of advice is don't negotiate against yourself at any level. Let Can you say people. more about what you mean so that people know? Again, it's in the book, but the, the con- my lawyer said that to me, negotiating a film score for me. And I said, well, maybe we could do it for less. You undercut yourself before you're even in the game. Let other people undercut you. They're, they're there to do that and they'll try. So don't negotiate against yourself. And that's true also of um, general self-evaluation of your capacity. You don't have to undervalue your whole being. Even to be a spiritual practitioner, you don't have to say, like, I'm just not worthy of it. No, you're a good person, but you're learning more. 
you know, you're, you're improving yourself, but it doesn't have to be like always self-negative talk. So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? Clearly have some gelato. <laughs> Let's be honest here. No, well, that segues right into our next question. <laughs> my favorite gelato flavor? No, what is your favorite hot beverage? <laughs> <laughs> hot beverage? I'm not a big hot beverage guy. Okay, cold. I have this new thing. Is I get cold brewed coffee in a thing and this uh, creamer that's made of just coconut and uh, almond. So there's no artificial sugar in it. And I mix them together on ice, crushed ice. Nice. That's my afternoon beverage these days. So what would be your last meal on earth? Any meal I have could be. <laughs> but if you had a choice and you knew. Okay. They said you were not going to feed you after this, no matter what happens. Right. <laughs> oh, God. I might have. You know, I am a carnivore, uh, omnivore, really. I've been studying Tai Chi for a long time. My Chinese teachers and. You should look at your teeth if you want to figure out what human beings are supposed to eat and eat in proportion to your teeth, which means, you know, we do have incisors. I do like meat, but I I don't, you know, I like a balanced diet. So, but if now we're going for the, it has to be summertime for me because out here where I am, I'm, I'm out in Long Island, best corn and tomatoes ever in the summer. And they were in the ground that earlier that day. That's going to be on the plate. And I'd have to say a, a grilled steak, a really high-quality grilled steak with a lot of char on it. So that part of me is very carnivorous. Yeah, those would be the three main ingredients of that kind of... And it wouldn't be at a restaurant. No, you should come to our farm. I mean, we don't have a steak, but we have beautiful tomatoes and corn in August. You could I'm, come I'm coming. Uh, <laughs> you know, are, are you vegetarian? I eat fish. <laughs> I just started recently because yeah. I'm on a protocol for, for remineralization that I plan to talk about on the podcast. So people will hear more about okay. that soon. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're balancing your input and output. So yeah. And could be grilled salmon or swordfish that could easily take the, the role of the steak and that meal and wouldn't be too much of a downer. Awesome. <laughs> well, do you have a morning routine? And if so, what part is non-negotiable for you? Well, I have to get out of bed at some point. That's not everyone always says that. I got to change that question. So ordinary. Uh, I have to admit that I don't really want to get out of bed, and I don't really want to stay there. So my morning routine is is a kind of uh, attempt to go back to sleep usually, and thinking I can't, I'm not going to be able to, and then looking at my maybe Instagram feed or email, and then trying to snooze for another ten minutes. And the whole thing is just ridiculous. I should just get up and bounce out of bed like like really good uh, disciplined people do. So it's a little bit of a kind of I experience a kind of you know momentum, lack of momentum, and then once I'm up, it's over. That's like, that's the end of that. But do you meditate or do you do any kind of yoga or? Any I'm not a good person to um, to emulate. Do what I say, not what I do. I meditate pretty much every day, one way or the other. But you know, might might be in the afternoon, might be in the morning. Might be 20 minutes, might be an hour. Well, in some ways, that's more disciplined because it's easier to do it if you have a rhythm established, I find, than if you don't. Yeah, it's easy. And I tell people, look, the neuroscience is all up for that if you want to develop. I'm just, I'm a musician. I'm kind of like, I'm, I don't have a regular schedule. You know, I just, um, I'm a go with the flow kind of situation. But I do have a, a regular practice. And then I have um, Tai Chi and uh, Qigong. And I probably practice three or four times a week. I'm doing a practice now, which is standing, you know, horse stance, you know, that, and I'm going to do it every day. 
I do that in yoga. Yeah, it's really powerful. Horse, yeah, wind horse, wind horse. It's like your your legs. It's a tai chi stance, yeah. kind of, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, like uh, kung fu. Also, you know, you just use your legs and then your body's upright, and it just develops a lot of lower body strength. So I'm enchanted by the idea of like just having that every day and building it up. I want to build it up to an hour. Yeah, and your I, legs start bouncing after a while, right? It's like, ooh. Yeah, you, you want that <laughs> juice, you know? Life is easier with juice. If you're, if you're dried up and, and, and for whatever reason, energetically, uh, life can start to really get, you know, like feel like you're driving around on flat tires. So, you know, and I think, knock on wood, I still got good juice and I'm working on that. And it's not like I want to live forever, you know, but if you are going to live, you should have juice. On some level, and even if you're sick, you can have spiritual juice. Like Ramdas had a lot of juice, right? In the, at the end, right? He had total juice. I know that last um, time with him in 2019 or 2020 was that 2020? No, that was 2019. Oh, 2020 2019 was the horrible year. It was the last <laughs> time with, with Ramdas, and then he beat it out of here before COVID hit. That was interesting. It was so powerful, though, to watch people like just look at him. His just making eye contact with him, people would start crying, and it was just like it would shoot you in the heart, you know. He was, he was, um, he didn't waver, you know. And this is devotion can be a very strong aspect of kind of more advanced spiritual practice. It can also be a trap for people not developing themselves enough. It's a very tricky area, in my opinion, especially these days. But he was single pointed as his Krishna does in his devotion to his guru. You have to look at, if you have that kind of relationship, you have to really feel confident that your teacher is a worthy repository of that. But in this case, it was a very pure uh, love and devotion. And it allowed, as far as I could tell, it allowed him to stay the course for his whole life. I really, I really respected him for it and admired him. And he was generous, you know. That's a big deal to me. How generous is it? Everybody can talk a big game, but like, okay, now it's time to put out a little bit and help somebody. Did you do it or did you make some kind of blah, blah, blah? And he really spoke about being in the world and, you know, your full self as a spiritual person in a way that I think should be emulated more and more. People should really learn from that. It's beautiful. Well, his teachings still, I mean, you know, they're very actively preserving his ragu and, and the guys, girls are all. Uh, working hard to keep his teachings available. But what has to happen is some new people have to come along, uh, young people, and pick up the thread and become manifest that. I almost think that might be more of a group project now than an individual project. Do you think that? I'm not sure. Sangha has a different feeling now. Like, okay, we could, everybody could play their part in it, you know, and, and do it, do it, a group. I think that's a healthy thing right now that's happening. I think they're doing some good entrepreneurial things. I have a few more questions and I am mindful of time. I know you have to jump off. Thank you. Something that people might not know about you. Oh, I thought you were about to tell them. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm asking. I'm being outed right now. Oh, gosh. I'm afraid to dance. Okay. Somebody asked me to <laughs> dance at a thing the other day and I just, uh, yeah, I had that musician thing of like, I, I really, but I, I think I secretly would love to dance. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting one. <laughs> I just made that up, but that's that's what came to mind. Um, so what are you reading right now? Or is there a book that you would rec recommend people on the entrepreneurial journey or creativity or spirituality? You know, a big topic for us right now is a community, Dharma Moon. By the way, everybody, go to dharmamoon.com and you'll see what we're talking about with all this stuff. That's that's all you need to do. And depending on when you when you hear this, there'll be some good, fun courses. So check it out if you can. Right now, a big topic for us is DEI. It's a big topic, and it, you know it, it's beginning to look at systemic 
suffering beyond individual suffering, societal suffering. And, and it's very good to understand the karma of your culture in that way. And I'm a student of it. I'm learning much more about it than I knew. And it's a very active topic in our community. And we're trying to get more training. So there's some books, I won't be specific about them, that are addressing that, that I'm looking, looking at right now. Awesome. Yeah. And I know Ethan's talking about that a lot on his Instagram too. So yeah. I've been appreciating that. Great. Well, what is bringing you joy right now? That's the last question. Talking to you. That's easy. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate your time and people check out his book, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Book. I really enjoyed it because it sort of helps you work through each of the elements. So it's a really nice companion to becoming a better entrepreneur and creative. Quick question for you. Why weave your bliss? Weave your bliss is, uh, you know, weave, no, weave is, you know, tantra. It, the, okay. it comes from tan, which means to weave. And then ananda is bliss. So this is this high, you know, quality of where we want to get to. So through tantra, you know, the idea of creating life as a tantric practice, we're creating bliss, yeah. right? So that's where it came from. Thank you for that. That, by, that went by like that, right? <laughs> Yeah. Thank you for your time. It was nice to talk to you. I could have talked to you for another hour. <laughs> yeah. well, we'll do it again another time. It would be nice to check in periodically just to say hello. I, I okay. Be up for that, okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you, David. It's great to see you. Okay. Take good care. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantulodesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. 